they were learning from people beyond their own disciplines. In fact, one person, the CEO of a software company, he's a serial entrepreneur, he said one time, once best practices become normal in your field, then they are nothing new and special. That's why you have to look outside of your field to get ideas. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Conversations Powered by Quantivos. I am Brian Gorman, your host and a Quantivos coach. And my guest today is Nancy Napier, Professor of Strategy and Executive Management MBA program at Boise State University. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you so much, Brian. Good to see you, be with you. Likewise. So, Nancy, what encouraged me or pulled me into, if you will, this conversation is your book, Wise Beyond Your Field. And interestingly, that book is co-authored by The Gang. So let's start there. Who is The Gang and how did they become involved with Nancy? I am a, an, I call myself an academic entrepreneur, and I do research and teaching in a lot of different areas. And years ago, I became interested in organizational creativity. And I looked at picked organizations that were as different as I could find. So I looked at software, theater, Shakespeare theater, and finally, Boise State University's football team. You may know that we have a blue football field, and so it gained notoriety partly because of that, and then they began to do quite well. So I began to study these three organizations uh, and then added one more in the healthcare field, and really it was a way for me to understand how they approached creativity. And I would go talk to the head football coach and then the CEO in the software company and the head of the Shakespeare theater company, and I'd kind of run around between all of them. And finally, the football coach, Chris Peterson, said, is there any way we could get together? How, what a brilliant idea, obviously. So we held a meeting for the four organizations, and I said, you can bring 10 people. Um, bring your employees. And he brought all of his coaches. And we had dancers and software engineers and coaches all sitting at the same table talking about creativity, and then that led to discussions about culture and leadership. And so that's how this group started. It was a gang of four, we joked. Uh, and then as this kind of grew and the senior leaders said, we'd like to get together a little more often than once a year, I reached out to some other organizations that it turns out were, they were all high-performing however measured in their fields. So the software company had all kinds of awards for its software. 
the healthcare company was leading in that field of information. The football program was winning games against universities where the coach of the other university's salary was bigger than the whole budget for the football program here. So they were high performing. They were also highly creative. And that led to that group, the gang growing. We added a, an internationally known dance company. Um, we had a high school, very well-known regarded high school, a marketing company. So different groups joined. And over time, we had seven or eight organizations. And one summer, I sat down and I said, what have I learned from these people over the last few years? And what have they learned from each other? And that's how the books came about, that they were learning from people beyond their own disciplines. In fact, one person, the CEO of the software company, he's a serial entrepreneur. He said one time, once best practices become normal in your field, then they are nothing new and special. That's why you have to look outside of your field to get ideas. So the gang started as a tiny research project for me to learn about organizational creativity and then grew into this, uh, I call them multi-learning, multi-discipline learning groups. And over about seven or eight years, we formed another five or six of them. Uh, one is still kind of going on its own, but it was a good, not profound, this idea, but to get people from different fields together and talk they're always amazed that they have so much in common as leaders, and yet they don't often do it. We stay in our own bubbles too much. And there's also so much we can learn across disciplines, across fields. One of the members of that original group that really caught me off guard, quite frankly, was the sheriff. <laughs> yes. So I, I met, I, well, I was doing another book, actually, on insight and aha moments, and I thought, well, you know, Sherlock Holmes, detectives, surely they have aha moments. So I, I finagled my way through the criminology department here at the university to meet the sheriff. And I had heard that this person was he's super data oriented and he reads a lot of business books. So sure enough, I showed up and I think one of the first things he told me about was how they had worked well, how incredibly expensive visits between family members and inmates at a jail or prison. And so he had come up with a way to basically use Zoom. In those days, it was Skype. And so to, that allowed for an inmate to talk to family members who might be elsewhere in the state or they might be abroad. And so that that idea was, was the first time it had been used in a jail in the U.S. Now it's very common. But I thought, okay, here's an organization that's trying to be quite creative. And uh, high performing, they and now he is a consultant all over the country uh, for law enforcement agencies. So, yes, the sheriff of all things. And of course, everybody was fascinated by that. We had tours of the jail. And one time, as we're walking through the jail, um, I was behind the football coach, and one of the inmates passed us on the hallway. And this young man said, Hey, coach. And I said, well, I hope that's not one of your students in here. So, no, he wasn't. But anyway, yeah, so we had the jail involved. Nancy, could you give us some idea of the kinds of things that transpired and how one discipline, if you will, one very different industry, mm -hmm. sparked growth and development somewhere else? Sure. 
I guess one of my favorites is um, the the software company. It was not large, maybe 50 or 60 people. And the, the CEO there who had worked for Hewlett Packard in his previous life, um, he was fascinated by the idea of position coaches in football. Now, I'm the kind of person who says football is offensive. And they'd say, no, 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 it's offensive. Is that right or is it the other way around? Offensive line? Yeah, offensive line, the O-line. Not offensive means it's offensive. So I know nothing about football or sports, really. But I learned what position coaches are. So they are the people that work with the kickers or work with the quarterbacks or work with the offensive line, the O-line, or the defensive line, or the receivers. So each coach is like a subset of players, of students that he worked with, to get really better. And so that meant... Where do you stand? Where do you look? How do your feet move? All that sort of thing. And, and it's very deliberate in what they learn, how they practice. So the CEO of the software company said, boy, why don't we have position coaches? So let's have somebody in development, somebody in the leadership team, somebody in the marketing team. And they actually rotated the person who took on the job as a position coach. I think a person would hold it maybe for six months. But during that time, that person would say, all right, Let's focus on one thing this month. So, for example, simple one, difficult, but simple one is um, better listening. So in the leadership team, they said, we are going to focus on improving our listening. We're going to practice that five times a day. If I interrupt you, you stop me and say, Nancy, that's number one for the day with me. And so they focus deliberately each area, each part of the organization on one task for a month and they figured after that it would become a habit um, as again in a sport you practice something over and over and it becomes a habit so that was one that that was that sort of struck all of us that was kind of interesting um, another one was the idea of sprints the marketing company would work on 90 day what they call 90 day sprints so they work on something very hard whatever projects they're doing and then they would stop and take a full day to debrief what worked, what didn't, what are we celebrating, what are we crying about, and give everybody a day or two to sort of come back down, take a breath, and then go forward. That was used for some of the other organizations as well. I think back to my undergraduate days, and I graduated with a degree in cultural anthropology. Ah. At the time, I thought that would be my discipline as a career. It didn't happen that way. And yet, many years later, I've found myself going back to that mm -hmm. because I was an organizational change consultant. And the ability to apply some of those anthropological principles, if you will, of participant observer and so forth, it just really, that came back to mind for me as I was reading this book because there was such a depth of commitment to learn from one another, to really open the mind, if you will, beyond, you know, I'm law enforcement or I'm theater or I'm dance, I'm software. And it just seems to me that, yes, our knowledge continues to get deeper and deeper, whatever field we're in, whatever discipline we're in. We know a lot more about leadership today than we did 
10 years ago or, or 50 years ago. And we know what has to change, for example, around leadership, given the shifts in the workplace today. But it still seems to me the more we can share our challenges as well as our successes across disciplines, the better off we all are. Agreed totally with you. And I, I think that was, um, that was a surprise for these leaders that they could learn from each other. And there, there are so many pieces to this that came into play. And you as an organizational change expert and leadership expert, you can list them. But for example, leaders in these organizations, some of them reported to a board of directors. They all had employees under them. They were at the top and on their own, basically. They were lonely. So with this other group of five or six, seven of them, they could talk to each other. No one had an agenda. If someone put an idea on the table, another leader could take it or not, and nobody's feelings were hurt. There was nothing behind it all. So they had a group that they could talk openly to, that they could share ideas and ask for input on ideas. They were all smart and they appreciated being around other smart people. And I think um, I, I was surprised. This became, uh, we would get together maybe every two months at a breakfast, a little kind of a diner in town. When you come out, I'm sure, well, it may be gone by then, but it, we would meet at seven o'clock in the morning, 6.30 or seven o'clock in the morning before the crowd had showed up. We had a little separate room for all of us to sit. That was the meeting these guys came to. And they made it. Uh, every one of them. The football coach did not, but we saw him in different places. But but he was the type of person that he didn't want to be out in public, to be honest, too much, because then everyone wanted his photo. But the rest of them came, and they said so much later they had, that was something they got value from. And what the best part of it was, you know, at the beginning, I felt like the old telephone switchboard. One of them would say something, I would go to see another one and mention it. And then when they started getting together and getting to know each other, they went directly to one another. So I do know that the software CEO and the football coach did get together a couple of times on their own to talk about recruiting. How do you vet people? The other thing that, that struck me over the years, we probably vet for I don't know, seven years. And um, I'd say 70% of the time they wanted to talk about culture and succession. So for, and again, you know this, that culture is so important in high-performing, highly creative organizations that just came through in spades. So yeah, it was, it was a, a good time for them to meet. And as I say, they, they haven't kept it up because they've retired or moved to different jobs. And it's just, we should talk about that. It is difficult to create and then to keep a group like that going. But when it is, people who participate find it very useful. A couple of things in what you said I, I think are really important to point out. The first is leaders can be very lonely. And so to really, as this group was forming, to offer them the opportunity to not be so alone in their jobs, I think, can become very appealing. And the interesting thing as I listen to you and as I read the book and as I think about this is some were leading tiny, tiny, tiny organizations 
and the theater group, the dance company, weren't very large. The, the coach didn't have a tremendous staff. The sheriff had a lot of people working for him. Mm-hmm. And again, we so often think not just about discipline, but um, what does a large organization have to learn from a small organization? What does a, a small business have to learn from a, a large entity? And what you showed with this group, what you talk about in the book is there's a lot to learn. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I think that's, that's a really good point that size. And then also the sheriff at one point, just he was spoke to one of my executive MBA classes recently. And he was saying, you know, that there's a difference in, um, physical strength, creativity, um, discipline there and mind. So here's the football coach is mostly physical. A lot of it is the software uh, and health care information. That was mostly mind work. And then the sheriff was in between. The jail had to do a little bit of both. And so he talked about how it was useful for him to hear about kind of both extremes, you might say. But I think I think you're right that they they so respected each other. That's the other thing that I learned. I was very careful in who joined that group and then also in the future because they're all leaders because they were lonely uh some of them were in the big time in the public eye the sheriff but the football coach by huge very well-known well-regarded fellow he left and went to work at the university of washington as their coach and when i saw him after that and said you know the best thing is nobody knows me here i can go to lunch and i'm not mobbed so so they were in the public eye and we were very careful and everybody, of course, agreed that what we talked about wouldn't go further. They all participated in this book and everybody signed off on what their sections were. But basically what happened there, we didn't really go into. So I think, um, yes, I wanted, I wanted diversity. And my pieces were the arts, education, government, and business. To me, the football coach was an educator. I gave him one of my favorite books is What the Best College Teachers Do. And so I always thought of those guys really as developing people, not playing with games. They did that. That was the outcome. But they were really in charge of developing young people. So, yeah, they they respected each other. The other thing that was interesting to me was I not I don't know celebrities, but our football coach at the time and still is a big name. And the, the value of having the sheriff and the football coach and the CEO, the software company, and the others as well, they're very well-known people around here and they're well-known in their disciplines. And there was an article in USA Today once about the football coach and creativity and it, the person interviewed me and I told him about this book, college teachers and other things. And boy, the reaction to that article creativity piece, but also that he let a professor sit in on his planning sessions for a huge Pac-10 game. Um, and as I said, it was like they were speaking Arabic or Chinese to me. I didn't understand what was going on. But that sense of we have a person who's, who's well-known, who sees the value in this kind of learning, that was huge for a lot of people to see. What was the, the magic sauce, if you will, that kept this group together for so long 
I hate to say it, but I think part of it is having a facilitator. <laughs> um, I was the one who would say, let's get together. Do, you, do any of you have a question or uh, that you want to get ideas about? So we learned later that having somebody, again, who's not part of it, but who can facilitate it. And like you, I really work on learning how to ask people questions. So I was pretty good. I'm, as I've been a teacher for a long time, so I know how to ask beyond the first two or three to really get to something deeper. And I think that really helped. They have said that, that it helped to have me or any facilitator who can do that do it because they're so busy. They didn't want to, um, they, they couldn't have taken it on. Early in the process, I did say, do you guys want to do some kind of a joint project? And they said, no, we're too busy for that. But if we think about it, what binds us as organizations is economic development of this community. So no one's going to send a child to a university from pick a state to come to Idaho, to Boise, Idaho, unless it's safe. So the jail, the sheriff, unless there are uh, activities they can do in wards unless it's a good school that they can go to. So they started talking and realized that everything they did contributed to making the community vibrant and that that was their common project, if you want to put it that way. But I, I think they um, we, we found that having somebody facilitate, and so for subsequent groups, another person in array did that, and so she handled some, I did some, we did some together, and then over time, we ran out of steam, uh, moved out to other things. And as I said, one group did keep going and two people in the group facilitated it. But frankly, I think not being officially a part of it, again, I didn't have any, any agenda, any access to it. I did. I did. I'm sorry. I did have an agenda. I was learning. I was using them as my research sites, so to speak, and then writing books about them. And But other than that, and that was... That's benign. That's pretty easy. I mean, I wasn't pushing anything and they weren't either. So I think having a facilitator, having people who are smart, who want to, after, as these people started leaving the group, I did have others say, can I come take their place? And one of them was a very famous person in town. And I, I said, well, you know, I have to vet you. And he was shocked. And so, yes, he made the cut. But I said, this is really important that there's a cultural fit within Brit. So that was part of what we worked very hard on when, when this article on USA Today came out, I got a call from someone who said, I'd really like to join one of these groups. It took a year to, and I kept watching for people around town that would be relentless learners, relentlessly curious and really aggressive learners, the two things that I look for. So if they gave off a sense of, oh, I don't know how things work. I'm a pop. I would have want to talk to a dancer. Yeah, that's fine. No, no skin off my back. So I was lucky, so lucky to get really good people. Nancy, in the book, you point out that Boise is not quite the same as New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles or Chicago or any number of major cities. What about Boise sort of helped make this happen. And what do you think can carry over 
into larger urban areas. I'm so glad you picked up on that. I think that's such a critical point. This is a city that is five hours from the next big city, five hours by car to Salt Lake City, nine hours to Seattle. We are in the middle of nowhere. People are discovering us, but um, for a long time, it's been a standalone. So we didn't have anything to depend on. There was only one uh, really good theater company, the outdoor Shakespeare one. There's one really good indoor theater company, one off. So we don't have a lot of competition in these areas. And so that means that they have to be really good. Second, for a long time, you know the company Boise Cascade. That was one of, I want to say, six or seven Fortune 500 headquartered companies that were headquartered here. So um, there were some very sophisticated, worldly folks who lived in this small city and understood the value of education and so forth. But, but the city itself had to become pretty self-reliant as we didn't have all these other resources around us. We had to grow them ourselves. So that was one thing. One of the, the gang leaders once said, well, the software guy, so high tech, he said, you know, if I lived in Silicon Valley, I could walk across the street and talk to half a dozen people just like me, other CEOs who face the same sort of things. I don't have that luxury in Boise, Idaho. But also that means I don't have that same competition for employees as directly as they do, for example. So he said, I'm forced to talk to people who aren't in the field. He's the one who said, once good practices become best and become normal, then everybody does them. So what else can you do? So I think the smallness was a real advantage for the city for a long time in, in lots of ways. But certainly when it came to the gang, the fact that there's not another sheriff anywhere close by, there's not another uh, healthcare information provider like HealthWise anywhere, um, then was a positive. So instead of saying, I feel so isolated, they said, I am isolated and that's okay because I can reach out to these other people. I'm curious about two things, frankly. One is whether something like this could happen with an organization because then you get into agendas, politics, all that sort of thing. We'd be internal competition. And so whenever it's come up about, can we do what in our organization? I've said, I don't know. The jail, one member, she joined one of the, the follow-on groups, gangs, and she started one in the jail and it apparently worked very well. But so that may be possible. And I don't know enough about how, how specifically she managed that. But the second thing is, is it possible in bigger places where the other piece here is that we don't have as much competition for brain space because it is a smaller city. And so we don't have as many, maybe as many demands, external social domains and so forth. Uh, I don't know. Uh, for a larger city, I have a colleague who um, lived in Houston when this was going on and she, we had many conversations and I met the person she wanted to have facilitate a group down there. She pulled people together and it didn't last. And I, again, I don't know I wouldn't blame a large city. It's a question of commitment, I think. And so uh, I talked to other people in other parts of the U.S. about doing this. And even in, I spent a lot of time in Vietnam. So I've had conversations with people there and in Europe. Um, and I think back to the secret sauce, I really think you have to have a champion for it to make sure that people understand the purpose and then um, how it works and then hang people to get together on a regular basis so that they can do that 
So I don't know that it's big or small. I really think it's it's someone like you who has that ability to pull people together, who has the ability to ask good questions and facilitate, and you you get something out of it. I what I got out of it was the ability to learn from these organizations and tell other people about it. Um, so so it has to be symbiotic, obviously, but I I would can't imagine that it doesn't happen in big cities. There are organizations where senior leaders get together, younger CEOs and so forth. So it happens. This one was organic and uh, just small and unusual group of people, that first one especially. Um, so I think, I think that's all part of it. If I can pick up on your I'm not in Silicon Valley example, hmm. the other advantage is so therefore, I have to think outside the box. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good point. And, and so really, I think it is mindset as much as, as geography. That's my sense of it. Yeah. And um, do I have the mindset that says I have to be the smartest person in the room? Or do I have the mindset that says I'm an expert? And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm here to educate other experts in my field or to show, you know, gain prominence as a thought leader in my field or whatever, or I may be an expert, but I know I don't know everything. And, and there's wisdom beyond my field. Yeah. And I think to be honest and not to, you ask, I think another piece of the secret sauce is they trusted that I would bring in people that would be as same intellectual level, same learning level, same low ego level. One of the coach's big sayings is we want low ego, high output people. And uh, and he called them OKGs, our kind of guys or our kind of gals. And so that became kind of a theme that we, that the gang people, they, they're very confident. They're very competent, but they don't have big egos, any of them. They park that. If they do, they park that at the door when they come in. They appreciate that each one of them is an expert in his, and the first group was all men, his field. But they all have common interests and common problems when it comes to running organizations. Leadership, culture, succession, developing people, um, dealing with toxic people. So they all have those common leader questions and issues to talk about. At one point, we did try, somebody would say, I have a problem I'd like to get the, the input from the group on. So that person would get together with somebody else. They would talk. Then this person, person B, would actually present it in a very simple way to the group. The problem with experts, as you know, is, is they not have so much great knowledge and so much understanding of the nuances, it's difficult to just give one sentence and stop. So if you have somebody who doesn't understand all of the nuances, that person at least can get the the process started. The other thing I did, and I do in my classes, um, I don't mind being the not smartest. I'm not the smartest person in the room. So if anybody used jargon, if anybody made a comment about a concept that I figured, if I don't understand it, probably others don't. They under all the guys understood football. I didn't, but so I would stop and say, wait a minute, what, you, what does that mean? Can you explain that acronym? We stop, speak English, 
speak to me, Nancy, who doesn't understand any of what you're saying. And that, that was sort of a, she can do that. We don't have to. And I don't, I do not mind playing that role at all. I'm good at it because I really don't understand so much. So that sense of we're all in here, Bernie, there's no one up in the ship. I mean, that they all just um, respected each other highly. And they should because they, again, we were very careful throughout all these different groups of putting people together who were great in their fields, who wanted to learn from others, who didn't have to be the smartest or talk the most. That's the other thing that a facilitator, as you know, can do is if it seems like one person is taking off, I can stop and say, hold that balloon over your head, we'll come back. But I wanted to hear what Brian has to say and what Gary has to say, because they may have some other ideas that are new for us. So so we didn't have lecturing going off on our long 10-minute, five-minute tangent at all. Not a lot of PowerPoints, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no PowerPoints ever. What a great, yeah, I'd never even thought about that. No, of course not. If you're sitting around eating your bacon and eggs and no PowerPoints. Right. Nancy, thank you so much for this conversation, for helping people understand the value and what it takes to become wise beyond your field. I appreciate it. It was lovely talking with you. Yeah, you're great at questions. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks so much.